What's Your Story? This is Success Stories with Kendra Hall, where inspirational people come to tell their story so that you can write your own. Here's Kendra. When I posted on my Instagram who my guest was for today's episode, I got so many messages back saying you interview the coolest people. I know these people are so amazing. And this is a woman I have admired since I first walked into one of her shops in San Francisco years ago. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. So let's get to it. Today's guest is Rebecca Minkoff. Rebecca Minkoff started her fashion brand in 2005, and it has grown into a worldwide empire with her items found in more than 900 stores. Her bags have been worn by icons like Jennifer Lawrence, Halle Berry, and Lindsay Lohan, just to name a few. Rebecca has just released her book, Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success. Rebecca Minkoff, welcome to success. We are so excited to hear your stories. I'm so excited to share my story. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get into your stories, there is a short story I wanted to share with you. Um, because when we got connected to have this conversation, um, I was taken back to, I want to say it was like seven years ago, um, maybe six, but I was visiting my sister-in-law in San Francisco. And I remember I was just really getting started as a female entrepreneur. I had left my job. I was going to start my, my own thing. I had really big dreams. And we were going shopping on Fillmore Street. And you had a store there. I think you still do. You have a store there. And I remember walking in and it was so beautiful and like everything. And, and I remember looking at all the bags on the wall and there were um, really cute clothes along the back and, and fitting rooms. And I remember thinking to myself, I want to do well enough that I can come in here and buy whatever I want. And, and I remember in the fitting room, the um, mirror, you could touch buttons on the mirror and it would change from like day to night or out. Or, and, and I did buy one. And at the time it was like way, it was definitely a splurge, but it was like a one piece jumper. And, and every time I wore it, it was like my symbol of like what was ahead. So even just, I know that female entrepreneurship, I know there, there's a lot to talk about here, but I just wanted to tell you that probably without you even knowing it, that shop there in San Francisco was like, I can remember it. Oh, and they serve champagne, which that, that was a good thing too. That was, it was amazing. So thank you for, thank you for that. Oh my God. Gosh, that's what's that's what I love hearing. I love hearing those stories. And I have to tell you that the signal difference between our brand and so many others is like I get to meet these women who are like, I got my first bag when and it was yeah. that moment for them that was so transformative and it was so pivotal and key. It's like these milestone moments. And so I'm just happy to hear that and that you know, I was the brand you picked for that. So I know I I love it. It makes me happy. It's what makes me love what I do. Yeah. And it's like a dream to be sitting here talking to you. And you have recently made another one of your, well, I'm going to assume it was a dream come true. Maybe it wasn't. So I'll put words in your mouth, but you just published your, is it your first book, Rebecca? It's my first book. Yeah. 
first book. It is magnificent, just out. It is called Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success. So congratulations on that. So exciting. Thank you. It's been a labor of love. I think I was very naive in the book writing process, thinking that it can't be that hard whenever I would see other authors lamenting. And it is hard and it is a full-time job. So I'm happy it is out in the world and women are reading it and hopefully changing their lives because of it. Well, and that was actually where I wanted to start. Two questions right off the bat. Like, who is this? Like, when you, because that's a key part for at least for me, and I know for a lot of authors, is when you're writing, to be thinking about who is going to be reading this. So when you were writing this, who were you picturing? Like, who is this book for? I think it is for anyone who has a dream, a passion, motivation. They want to get successful, whether they're working for themselves or not, or in whatever they're doing. If being a mom is their primary job, but they just want to be better at that. And I'm not, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that just being a mom, because I'm a mom and it's, and it's yeah. one of my, <laughs> it's one of my pride and joys. Um, and it's the hardest thing I think to do. So I, I give mad props to full-time mamas, but I think that, um, I wanted to be able to give someone almost a guidebook of, we all have fear and a lot of us can let it stop us. And a lot yeah. of us can listen to the wrong voice. And so how do we adopt new rules and new ways of behaving that allow us to say, okay, I'm scared, but I'm going to do it anyways. So along with hearing my 20 year journey and that whole story, I sort of distilled down, like what were those things that I did to still stick around? And so that's kind of the rules for success. I think it's funny because as I was reading it, the the first chapter is sign your own permission slip. And the message is definitely, you don't need anyone else's permission. And yet it was so ironic because I felt like as I was reading the book and even skipping around to the different rules that, because it's a very intense time as we're recording this, like finding the rules that I'm like, I, I need an answer to this. I need. And what I found myself was by listening to your stories, they were in many ways giving me permission to live my life in the way that I want to live it. So even though you're not, you don't need permission, I appreciate the permission that you gave me with this book. Anytime. I mean, think about it. We've been told we need to ask for permission since we were little. And you know, we're making our kids ask for everything for permission. So I feel like you get to be an adult and you still seek that. Is it okay if I do this? Is it, do you think I should? And we, we don't need that. We just need to go down our path. And yes, we can have support and mentorship and advice. But that's Mm -hmm. very different from that seeking of permission. Is it okay that I'm going to put my unique stamp out into the world? Yeah. So, and let me ask, this is the other question right off the bat. I find the title Fearless to be a really interesting one. And I wanted to start, even though we've already started, but to start there and ask you, because I feel like fearless is a weighted word and there's now like you can, you can look at it in a lot of different ways. So what is Rebecca for you, your definition of fearless or fearlessness? Like what are we, what are we working towards in, in, in that word? We are definitely not working towards never being scared. Mm -hmm. Throw that out the window. You're going to be scared. You were given that emotion as an instinct for a reason. Mm-hmm. It is crawled over from running away from bears and snakes into, should I do my 
passion? Should I ask for that raise? Should I demand my needs for my schedule, right? And then we go, oh, I'm scared. Maybe I shouldn't do that. So to me, fearlessness is knowing you're scared, not letting it get in the way of what your objective is. Yeah. And I, it's so funny, even as you say that, I'm just thinking about all the different ways. And I think especially for women, fear can show up. Um, I was just at lunch with a friend inside, by the way, that's happening. Um, I was just at lunch with a friend and they sat us at the table that was kind of like right in the walkway, like the, the first table that everybody walks, like anybody who walked there, everyone's going to hit you with your bags, probably your bags, which that I wouldn't have been, I would have had a problem with that. But I sat, I was the first one to get there and I sat down and thought to myself, gosh, I, you know, we're one of the first reservations. Like it's kind of like there are plenty of other, like I kind of want to move, but I don't really want to, I don't want, you know, like I just, there was this weird, and I wouldn't have identified it as that until my friend came in, sat down and said to the host, it said, can, can we move to that table over there? And just this like, again, not asking for permission. Can you think of any of the ways, and I feel like you have practiced throughout your entire life, truthfully, of identifying fear and moving past it. Can you share any of the stories of, that stand out to you, whether in big ways or small ways, where you have felt fear and then had to deal with it? Yeah. I mean, some of the examples I share in the book, we were going to sort of re-engineer the fashion week model. And for those not in the industry, it used to be that you would show your goods. uh, The buyers would come after the fashion show. So you'd make a whole bunch of fantasy football items, pray that people liked it, pray that that review changed everyone's mind and then sell it and then ship it nine months later. So not only was it a ripe market for knockoffs, but it was a waste Mm. of inventory uh, and a whole other thing. So we, we shifted the model. And so that the runway and the presentations we do are in season. So whatever you're seeing is available for purchase, which seems like very practical for the rest of the world. I see your face, but for, well, fashion industry, yeah. but the, for the fashion industry, it was very new. So we were the first mm-hmm. to do that. We were shortly followed by Tommy Hilfiger and Burberry for a minute. Um, And it was scary to take that risk. We didn't know if it would work. We didn't know if people would be accepting of it. Um, And you're sitting there like, if this doesn't work, we're going to be really embarrassed and we will have messed up our order system for the season. So that was definitely a huge risk, but it paid off. It paid off in spades and and it's something we still do to this day. Did you ever think about not doing it? Yeah. Like we... It took us two years to finally feel bold enough to do it and that we were in a, in a position that we were strong enough as a company that if it was a mistake, we could quickly pivot and recover. Yeah. Oh, that's smart. Like to have, yeah, to have that. I think a lot of people don't think of that. You can take risks. I don't think people are necessary, not in all of the conversations that I've had here on this podcast, the most successful people are the risk takers. They're the ones who are willing to face the fear, move past it, but it's not like, oh, I'm going to throw all these cards up in the air and see what happens. If you're going to take a risk and face fear, there's usually not not necessarily a backup plan, but like um, an appreciation for what is at stake and, and how you could pivot if you needed to after taking the risk and facing the fear, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that you, you can't have this idea of everything has to be perfect and all my ducks are in a row and then I'll take the risk. I think then you'll never take it. It's like, you know, waiting to have a baby until your career is taken off. Like there's never going to be that moment. 
Don't wait to have the baby. I, I just read an article about all the ballerinas in the pandemic who were like, had people tell like, have your babies now, like go have, have your babies, have your babies. But there's, so maybe that's the only perfect time to have a baby is if you're a ballerina in the pandemic. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> and if that's not you, there is not going to be, there's not always going to be a perfect time. So, so Rebecca, let's take, I want you to take us all the way back because I, um, you're definitely one of those people who I got the sense that from reading this, that you had a pretty good idea at a young age what you were, not maybe, maybe not exactly what you were going to be doing, but what you should be doing. Can you tell us, like, can you tell us the story of like the first time you knew that you were destined to design or discover that love? I first discovered it when I was about eight years old. I wanted this dress. It was a very simple, really ugly pattern dress that I saw on a store window and had to have it. And my mom was like, no, I'm not going to buy that for you, but I'll teach you how to sew it and you'll make your own. And I was pissed. Like I was like, (laughs) just buy me the damn dress woman. Um, And so she brought out her mother, her grandmother's old singer sewing machine. That's what I first learned on. Um, It was practically the ones where you, push the thing back and forth like that. It's it's not even electrical. Um, But very quickly, I discovered that I could have an idea about something and go make it. So we would go to the pattern store, buy the prints, buy everything. And then she taught me and I just fell in love with the idea that I could make something that was my own. And as I got older um, and went through some painful teenage isolation slash bullying years, it was me and that machine. Like I was like, all right, I'll hang out with you again today, lady. Mm -hmm. Um, And really took comfort in the fact that I could be creative in spite of what was going on outside of, of my life at the time. And so just, it became an early love that, you know, I didn't let go for a long time. I mean, I had that machine until it fell out of a moving truck in one of my last New York city moves. And I was like, no, no. Did you pick up the pieces? I did. It was, it was smashed. I mean, you know, it was, it was done. It had survived like five moves and that was the end of that rope, my little brother sewing machine. So, um, but it really gave me confidence. It gave me, uh, the ability to sort of just create what I wanted in a literal sense. Yeah. I, um, my mother is a, was a costume, like she's a seam, like growing up, all of my clothes were made by my mother. She still makes many of my kids clothes and, um, it never passed it down to me, but my sister does, uh, sews and does design. So it's kind of, it's an interesting thing that it, I didn't get it, but my sister did, but I do have a, actually, this is a offshoot question. Um, as a parent, I know you're a mother. This is something that I've been, that's been on my mind. Um, because when you see something in your child, like, Oh, look at Rebecca loves to sew. Um, Oh, look, my son is into coding. Oh, look, you know, what, whatever, whatever it is. Um, I feel like there's this then tendency to be like, okay, let's, get him into all of the coding classes and let's send her to, you know, childhood dress school or, or, or whatever it is. Like, can you tell us, but it seems like whatever that relationship was and the approach that your mother took kind of standoffish in a way, um, really served you. Any thoughts on that for, for, for fellow parents who are listening? Oh, I wish I could not be a hypocrite, but 
I see my daughter has a natural talent for dance. She has the turnout. She has the feet. And we were we were taking dan- dance classes until the pandemic. And then we came down to where we were living temporarily. She's like, I hate dance. I won't do it. I'm like, but you don't know how lucky you are. You have the right bone structure. You have the like, you have it so much easier than me. And I struggled for so long and wanted to be a dancer, but I just didn't have it. Uh, or my son loves soccer and drumming. And I'm like, great, you're going to be a soccer player or a drummer. So I'm just as bad. Mm-hmm. Even though my mom, my whole life was hands off. She's like, you don't want to dance anymore? Don't dance. You don't want to do this anymore? Don't do it. And it worked with sewing, but I always am like, mom, you should have forced me to dance. Like you should have done it. I would have been a really great dancer. Mm. So I don't know. Yeah, it's I'm tough. still trying to figure it out. I, it, it's a tough, it's tough because you want to, like, I know my parents' storytelling at a very young age was my thing. And I think about all of the people whose kids or even themselves who found their passion at a very young age, right? And then you you like start looking for it. And I found mine when I was 11. And there was definitely a time where my parents were like, you need to be doing this. You need to be doing this. And I kind of like stepped away because, you know, that's what teenagers do. And then you want to live vicarious, vicariously through them. So I'm going to be that crazy dance mom. Oh gosh, my daughter's a dancer. We'll talk about, we'll talk about that after, after the show, they may have been at the same place dancing. Okay. So in the book, you talk about this phone call that changed your life. And it was a very short phone call. Um, but, but I want to hear about this, this phone call that helped you to, enabled you to make the decision to move it, like 18 years old. Can you take us back to, to that time and, and, and that phone call and the decisions that followed? Yeah. So I was deeply um, conflicted. All my friends were doing the college tours. They had already probably already been accepted. And I had done one college tour and I was like, I don't think this is for me. And I'm not sure, you know, what next steps look like. And my brother had gone to a party and came home with a phone number on a shredded piece of paper. And he's like, I met a designer. He said, call him for an internship or something. And so I was like, great, this is my ticket that I needed. So I called up the designer and it was a two question interview. It was like, your brother seems nice. When can you be here? Uh, we pay minimum wage. That was the qualifications. Um, and I was like, I'll be there in October. Uh, so what happened is, uh, I moved there and he was, he was a designer that made most of his money doing trunk shows. So Neiman Marcus and Nordstrom, he was living on the road, always doing trunk shows because his product was really expensive. So he had to meet and greet all these women. So I walk in and the CEO takes one look at me and she's like, "Ugh, another one. Like he just keeps letting these random people in here and I'm the one that has to deal with them. And I was like, I'm going to show you that I got what it takes lady. And so I just decided that I was going to work my ass off, you know, and really make sure she knew that I had what it took to end up an employee there, which I did. And we became very close and she's a, an incredible sponsor of mine. But I think it was that, that first moment where you're like, Oh, did I make the wrong move? Is she going to fire me? Am I out of here? But uh, I definitely moved to New York, two suitcases, nowhere to live except that one $4.25 internship. Oh my gosh, I can't. I, I was read, having, having made my own move to New York City, I was reading that and like to think about doing that at 18 years old. But this is, this, is a, this is something I wanted to talk to you about because I know that there, I mean, I don't know how much of our audience is 
you know, high school seniors, probably not many. And if you are, you just heard it. There you go. Always be, if your brother comes home with a slip of paper with a guy's phone number on it, definitely call him. Okay. So we can, (laughs) you know, there was a, there there was a lot more to it. However, I know that we have many more people who listen, who are in midlife, you know, they're, they're late twenties, early 30s, late 30s, for all of this counts as midlife, by the way. Uh, And they're trying to, they're thinking to themselves, I can't take a risk like that. I have too much at stake. I have a mortgage. I have kids. I have, what would you say to the people who are afraid to make the kind of move, not necessarily move to New York City, um, that kind of move because they, they think, they think there's too much at stake. Comes back to fear. I think that you clearly have to be a lot more strategic and thorough. You and I had nothing to lose except for coming home with a tail between our legs and sleeping in our parents' basements or wherever it was. But when you do have kids or you do, you are the breadwinner or your family depends on those finances and then you want to start something, the stakes are a hundred percent higher. So I think that you have to figure out, you know, how does your current job fund and or allow you to explore something? How do you get a little bit of traction? Are you going to be burning the oil? Yes. You're going to not sleep just, you know, between taking care of kids, having your main gig, and then your side gig, your nights and weekends are going to be, you know, not going out with your friends, but working on your thing, which is what we had to do. So it's not really any different. Um, And then I would say that make the jump or switch when you see that you have traction or you get an investment from fans, friends and family that can be that gap or a seed round and make sure you don't leap until you know that you have something that will take off. I think people can, can get really excited and in their own head about something that no one wants or is terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, so make sure that you, there's a desire and it's really easy these days to get feedback. Everyone wants to be a critic. And so get that tried and tested and then make the leap when you have a little bit of, you know, cover if you have some rough steps because the rough patches will be there. Yeah. What what did your feedback experience look like? Like when, how did it finally, how did you finally know like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm, we're, we're launching this. This is it. So I had a very small five piece clothing collection um, that expanded that I did for probably four years, not making any money, not really paying the bills, going into debt. Um, And so that was sort of an indicator. Oh, this is not really working. I'm not going to be the next great clothing designer from what I'm doing. And it was really when the bag came out, Daily Candy had written about it. And it just, you saw this hockey stick of, you know, 12 bags, 75 bags, 250 bags, 500. And the number just kept going. And I was like, this, there's something to this magic bullet here. And I'm going to ride this momentum. And yes, I love apparel, been doing it my whole life, but everyone wants this bag. And so I'm going to just hang on to this wagon and see how far, you know, we can go. And so, you know, shut down the clothing and really just focused on the bag business. And so uh, the feedback was women loved it because I hit, I hit at a time when, that price point was affordable. It was anti-logo and it was something that you could have that was trendy, but not like an eyesore three months later. So I think I, I hit something. It was good timing, but also smart marketing and smart, smart selling. So the clothing line though, you did that for four. Did you, did I hear that right? Four years? Yeah. So looking back on that, 
I mean, four years can seem like a blip and four years can seem like a lifetime too. Like, what do you, what do you think about that time frame before you were like, cause I'm sure there are a lot of people who are like, uh, is cause they, they say, you know, the only, the only time you can actually fail is when you give up. Was there any tension? Like when you look back, are you like, Oh, I should have stopped sooner. Or what was I like, what were those four years like, or maybe the end of those four years? I mean, for me, they were incredibly exciting at the time for four years did not seem like a long time at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I was, I was so the pay and the reward was the work. It was mm. the experience of it all. So for me, I was doing whatever it took to, to make that happen. And I don't necessarily agree with that about giving up. People call it pivoting. I didn't yeah. give up. We had to pivot. Yeah. So we had to pivot to the thing that was going to pay the bills and show us the greatest leap forward as a company. Yeah. Well, and now we all know the word pivot. It's become, right? I should just get it tattooed on my wrist, honestly. So I know that you do a ton of work. You're very passionate about um, female entrepreneurs, supporting, nourishing them, helping them grow. Tell me, tell me about that. When did that become a big part of what you do? I know you started the Female Founder Collective. I want to hear about, about female entrepreneurs and, and why this matters to you so much. I think that the fashion industry was always women-dominated, but cutthroat, throw each other under the bus, women dominated. Um, And so I thought that was not what I had expected. And then when I would hear women talk about their experiences outside, I was like, oh, that's a whole other problem. There are two problems. There's women throwing each other under the bus. And then there's the glass ceiling of the women banging their heads up against it and, you know, having this male dominated environment that's not changing. And then I would attend these conferences that I'm sure you've been at. And we're all talking about the wage gap issue and the difference. And we all sound so smart. Nothing is changing. All this echo chamber of, of talk was not actually changing anything. So between a severe loneliness I felt of a female founder community, between a frustration at the wage gap, I said, what is missing from this ecosystem? Community is missing education is missing and a recognizable seal. So you know who you're supporting business wise and who they are is missing. So could my co-founder and I create, um, all those three things because I started my business with a passion. I certainly didn't know all there was to know about business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so could we be that place where you go as a woman, you've already started, you need some help and it would be best taught to you by a founder who's figured it out. Yeah. Um, so that was the goal behind launching it. And we have over um, almost 10,000 members. We're launching a paid membership. Um, well, we will have launched, a, we have a paid membership, uh, which is exciting because there's even more we want to do with women and, and support them. Well, and I always feel like, you know, you, you go through it, you learn the things that you learn for yourself individually, and then you move on to the next, the next phase, the next level of success, the next, whatever it is. And it's like, what do you, what do you, I always think about it. It's like, it's so much work to plan a wedding. Um, I remember just spending so much time planning the wedding and then you get married. Hopefully you only have to do it once. And then what do you do with all that knowledge? Right? So like here, here you have these women that have gone through like at all of the different phases of startup of whatever it is to be able to share that knowledge back. And I think it, and to have a safe space 
you, you mentioned the wage gap to talk about money. Like, I think that women don't talk about money enough. Have you? We don't, you know, uh, I interviewed uh, Sally Krawcheck for my podcast and she was like, if women talked about money, the way we talk about our kids and sex, how much more rich would we be? Right. Yeah. Like, they, like you and I, you and I got on this podcast and we immediately were like school kids. But what if I was like, Hey, how did you invest in Bitcoin? Did you, did you buy more when it tanked? You know, yeah. I got, I made $900 in Dogecoin. What about you? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Or like even the, I, I mentioned the lunch at the top of the podcast where my girlfriend's like, I want to sit over at that table. And so we were sitting there and even for me, like I, in certain settings, I talk about money. I think it's a, uh, a lot of my work is as a keynote speaker and every day we are as a keynote speaker, you're being, you know, people hire you for a certain amount of money to speak for an hour. And so it's a constant uh, negotiation of knowing your worth. And a lot of female speakers struggle with that. They're like, oh, okay, but I, you know, they do whatever. So I'm sitting here with my girlfriend though. And she like leans over. It's our, it's our first lunch together which is funny when you have your first lunch with a girlfriend and she leans in and said, we were talking about something and she leans in and she, we were, I can't even remember what it was. Something about the, the cost of a glass of champagne. And she says, but it's okay. I'm doing pretty well. And, and I was like, me too. Like what, uh, like what, all the other things that we had talked about. And then it took that long to say, do pretty well. Right. Ugh. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you're taught that you shouldn't even brag about it, you know, because that might offend someone. If you're doing well, you should be quiet about it. Yeah. And that doesn't serve. Fine. Fine. Maybe if it's unbecoming, but it doesn't serve the women who are coming up behind you. Like they need to know. Yes. They need to know what that can look like so that when, so they have the courage to talk about it. So I do have a question. Um, I, I was reading in the book about, you mentioned the comparison trap, you mentioned scarcity. We're talking about women and how it can be cutthroat and th throwing other women under the bus. And you can, you can choose to decline, but have you ever, have you ever felt yourself getting competitive with someone? And maybe it was earlier in the career. Um, and now looking back, you're like, oh gosh, I, you know, I shouldn't. And, and like, what do you do when you yourself and you know, you shouldn't, but you're getting competitive and you, maybe you hold them back in subtle ways. Have you, have you been there? And any thoughts on that from your own Oh experience? my God, have I been there? I've been there so many times. I'll never forget. And I, and I know her well, when I was starting out, there was a really popular handbag designer. And if I were her, I would have been like a total bitch to me, mm -hmm. like coming up, taking my business, stealing my customers, not, not out of spite, but customers would say, we want the new hot young thing. And she was always so nice to me and she was always so kind. And so I felt like, oh, this is gross that I'm like, hey, got this business. And meanwhile, she's like, how are you? Nice to see you. How's business? And I was like, I'm going to learn from this woman and I'm going to be that person that's like, 
not going to be that I got to, there's only one pie for me and you can't have it. And so that interaction with her and the continued interaction with her as the years went on uh, was really important for me to see that you could be totally okay. There's more than enough to go around. I still feel competitive sometime. I, I, I think that's in human nature to feel that way, but I try and say, okay, why am I being competitive? What makes me think that I can't have that too? And it's not her stealing it from me. It's just, I need to work harder or do better. Yeah. I feel like, and especially in the kind of, I, yeah, I think competition is human nature. My husband and I almost broke up over a game of Monopoly. We're not allowed to play Monopoly anymore. So whether it is between men or women, definitely between women and women. And then, you know, you're, you're, you are fierce. Like you are, like you, you've got that, that fire, that motivation. And so it's, it's driven. So it's there even more. But yeah, I think that it's a, and it's good to hear that sometimes you still feel that way. Cause sometimes I do, you know, and I'm like, Ooh, Ooh, I want to, and I feel like it's a constant practice to not do that yourself to someone else, even though, you know, you shouldn't. Right. Yeah. It's not easy. And it's not something that suddenly just one day magically is deleted from your thinking. Like yeah. you have to causatively be like, all right, enough. We're good. We did that. Let's move on. Well, and I love that you have that example of that other woman to think about. So, so maybe that's like a really concrete strategy. If you feel yourself getting competitive, if you feel yourself moving into a scarcity space instead of an abundance space, think about the abundant people who have been a part of your journey and what would they do in this moment to help guide your next decision in that way, next behavior. Yeah. And even, even if you find yourself getting competitive, go one step further. And I do this sometimes like, Hey, is there anything you need that I can help you with Mm. to that person, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and it opens up a a line of support and respect and just like, Oh, I thought this was us against, you know, each other. And it's like, Oh no, it's us against whatever the other goal is. Yeah. Yeah. And like what, what beautiful, because I really think that they're looking up to you too. Like they're watching you too. So to be the first person to make that step is, is a, is a powerful place to be not, not, power coming down, but power from the inside out. Um, so yeah. I have to, I have to tell you, Rebecca, the chapters then that as I was skipping around that I devoured, well, there's one before we get to that, where it says, um, don't ask for help. Now that is a, one of your rules. I think it's rule number seven, where is it? Oh, rule number three, don't ask for help. I love this. I want you to, I want you to talk about, I want you to talk about that because it's provocative, but it's brilliant. So the, the, the line is don't ask for help, ask for what you need. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many emails I get. Most of them coming from LinkedIn. Would you sit down with me? Can you help me? Do you think, Hey, Rebecca, we just help me with this. No, I need you to give me a very clear thing that you need. I need an introduction. I need an angel investor. I need a blah, you know? So I think it's more the idea of you have to get super specific what you're asking of someone and do your research on that person so that you're not asking with your limited time with that human, like, how did you get started? Like, that's not going to help you. 
<laughs> my path is never going to be the thing that you should ask me about if you have five minutes with me. It's, hey, I have a sample. Do you know where I should get it mass produced? Or do you know what store is the best one for me to launch in? I think those are where people can jump into action and provide support instead of these general nebulous, like, how do I get started? What do you think I should do with my career? Um, can I pick your brain? Can I pick your brain? Can we have coffee? No, we cannot have coffee. I don't have coffee with my mom. I don't have time for coffee with my, why would I, sometimes I do. So, so we hear like, oh, so reach out. So that's what I love. I love about this. So if you're one of those people who, who aren't afraid to reach out to people on the people you admire on Instagram, on LinkedIn, you find their email, you find a phone number, whatever it is, you aren't afraid of that. That's, that's just part of the process. Rebecca gives such a great like insight here to and you just and you just said it ask for very specific things that you need because in that question you're showing that you've done your research you've done the work and so now they're you feel like I'm sure Rebecca that you're giving them a piece of information that can take them to the next level not like yeah. Just go listen, listen to a podcast. You can Google Rebecca <laughs> and find out where she like, why ways you should just write back and be like, let me Google that for you. That website where you can. So <laughs> I love that. So don't ask for help. Ask for exactly what you need. Here's the thing. If you don't know what you need yet, you're not ready to ask. Like, Figure, get to the yes. point where you know what you need. And then you get that one chance to, and, and, and yeah, I believe in that one chance where you can ask the question. It's really great. It builds a relationship and something magical happens years down the line, whatever, but don't blow it by asking the wrong question when you have the courage to do it. So I love that. Did you ever ask anyone for help? I asked, I asked them for what I needed. Yep. And look at where you are. So there you go. If nothing else, if nothing else. Okay. So, but then I, and maybe this is just where I am, but I know a lot of, I mean, a, a lot of women are talking about this. It's in the news. It's in the paper about, and in particular for women and then throughout the pandemic, this will be airing in June who knows? I'm sure we'll still be talking about it. I can't imagine it will be gone completely by the time we're in June. But um, I was fascinated about um, your discussion of burnout. And um, I was wondering if you could share your approach to, and I, I'm like hesitating asking you this because you even put in there, every panel I'm on, I get asked to like, what is your self-care routine? But I want you to tell people, cause I love the self-care. It's like the, it's like the opposite of the self-care or it's just like a really real self-care routine. So tell me about burnout and how you manage self-care. Okay. I have done, I, I feel like all we hear about is burnout and it seems to be in the modern cultural zeitgeist. But when I first started and tell me if you felt this, like I didn't experience burnout ever because I loved what I did so much. And that was fulfilling. I worked all the time. I didn't even know what the Hamptons were. I didn't know what like dating was. I just had my head down nights and weekends, just working. No one forced me to, but it was like that self-generated excitement. 
Yeah. And I experienced burnout when I no longer loved what I did, or I no longer felt connected due to whatever was happening in my life. And so that to me is where if, if you're saying, okay, nice, Rebecca, great that you love what you do, but I'm working in a job that I hate because I have to pay my rent and eat. So it's, it's my view is find something you love in that job, even if you're doing it for the paycheck or find a way to fulfill your passions outside of that job that give you that, that joy. Um, or if you still hate your job and you're experiencing burnout, see what you can do to move or, or, or learn that will take you and make you better for your next journey. So, um, I don't think a mask or a glass of wine or a facial as great as it is, is going to cure the feeling of burnout. Because if you do that on Sunday night, guess what? Monday, you have to go back to work yeah. and you're going to be like yeah. in this ping pong effect. So find the things that bring you joy, amplify them. If it's not your job, seek outside of that. Is it volunteering? Is it giving back? Is it your family? Whatever it is and pour your passion into that. And I don't think you'll feel as burnt out as you, as you currently do. I I love that you said it. Um, I have it written down. Burnout comes from a constant state of stress. There is no scented candle in the world that can make that feeling go away. <laughs> but there, I mean, yeah. I, and I was talking about this with um, Amy Morin, who wrote the book, uh, uh, like 13 Things That Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And I'm like, people are like, take a bath. And I just I think baths are so gross. I will never take a bath. I just think they're I just think they're disgusting. But that also brings up a point, which I loved what you said in here beyond burnout and a couple of other things, but that like it's entirely possible that work will like is the solution. For some people, work is the solution to burnout, but finding a different aspect of it. And and I liked what you said in there that because I think we have to be careful of the stories we take from other people. And you had said this, like you would say, oh gosh, I just don't feel, I don't feel as connected. I don't feel, and all of your friends and all of your family and I would be like, oh, well, yes, because you just had your second baby and your company is growing and it's this, 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 and this. And, and you realized it, you said in there, people talk more about treating burnout than what causes it. And so like really looking into the cause of your burnout, right? And so what did you discover the cause was for you? So at the time, the cause was mostly due to the fact that having a company that was growing, which was an awesome thing, coming back from a maternity leave, feeling somewhat like a stranger, like, oh, you don't need me for that. You don't need me for that. Okay, cool. But I used to do that. And even though it's your own company, you have to sort of let go of things. And some of that was really hard for me. And so I felt like if I let go of this, then who am I? And what, what is my role and what do I do? And there's definitely plenty to do, but it was sort of shifting gears with what I had been doing for so long. When you're, when you're building and touching every part of your company, and then you suddenly don't do that on every level anymore, it can be a little bit like jarring. And so for me, it was saying, okay, what is my highest and best use that I enjoy? And okay, I'm going to go do that. And that was really being forward-facing, re-engaging with my customers, traveling and meeting them. Uh, and so that's where I could find that feeling of passion again. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I think it's really easy to assume that there's something, something that if you're feeling burnt out, that you should, that you should 
disconnect from work and that it's too much. But you had said in there, like you had felt burnt out coming back from maternity leave and you were like, how do I feel burnt out from my job? I haven't been at it three months like that. Um, oh, and there was something, there was something else in there. Oh, you said, you know, like if, okay, I've got this job, I have to pay the bills. Um, I can't just leave this job. Like, how do I find, and you said, find the parts of it that bring you joy. And I was, I was recently having this conversation with a friend who is in a job that she knows she's good at, but it's not fulfilling her. Like, should I, should I go to the next level? Should I, I should be searching for something new or bigger. Like I'm not. And then realizing that that job was also then allowing her, and you talk in the book about balance and really the myth of balance was allowing her to invest more time in her children or be more present for them or invest in, you know, mentoring the people on her team instead of the daily, the daily tasks. So, and for you, it was going out and meeting your customers. So have you, which brings me, which actually is a, how has the pandemic, have you been able to meet your customers? If this is really the thing that brings you joy when everybody's been, separate, like what has the pandemic looked like for Rebecca Minkoff? Oh man, it's been interesting. Well, um, clearly meeting my customer in person was cut to a halt. So was 70% of our business, which evaporated overnight in the first week. Um, yeah. So this year has been really, a, really truly about rebuilding our business, becoming an excellent direct-to-consumer company, and yes, definitely spending a lot of time with my customer, whether it was the Instagram lives I would do every day and now, you know, twice a week to the podcast, to all the spe- the amount of speaking engagements I've done, you know, via Zoom like you, like I'm meeting so many people and it's so rewarding. So I probably met more people because I didn't have to worry about like, oh, do I want to do that one? Because I don't want to get on a plane again. I'm just like, yes to all. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I've definitely enjoyed that. It's been the hardest work of my life, you know, making sure our company made it through. Thank God women love handbags. And if it, if they have nowhere to go, they are buying them. So I'm grateful. Yeah. Um, but it's been, it's been a lot. Yeah. It's been well, a lot. And then you add to that, you know, we aren't separate from all the other roles that we play and the decisions you have to make. To, I know you decided to make a temporary move because it would be the best for your children and your business. Like there's, there's all those factors in there. It's never as straightforward as it seems. I feel you. March was a, a dark time. March 2020 was a dark time for keynote speakers when I was like, oh, I guess <laughs> I don't have a job. Well, Rebecca, I have two more questions for you. The first is this. Where can, um, where can people find you? The book Fearless is out. Make sure you go check it out everywhere where books are sold. You've mentioned a podcast, your Instagram. Where should we be looking for you? Well, if you like listening to other women's stories, I interview them and the podcast is called Superwomen with Rebecca Minkoff. You can follow me at Rebecca Minkoff. And sometimes I do some fun stuff on Clubhouse. So follow me there as well. Awesome. Yeah, you're uh, so involved in your own social media for being a CEO founder. It's just amazing. It's great. They really get to see you. And then lastly, one last question. I ask everybody this and I thought it'd be a good place to end. Rebecca, what does success mean to you? What is your definition of success? 
This is a tough one because I feel like people's definitions of success changes as their journey changes. So for me, success used to mean, did I have to dial 1-888-935-9535, which is the Chase bank number to see if I had enough money to eat, okay? Like I, that's what I had to do every night. Like, can I go out to dinner night? Let me call the number and see if what my bank account says. Oh no, can't do it tonight. Um, you know, success to me was opening our first store, closing down Green Street to have this 5,000 person fashion show. Um, success to me today is that we have survived a pandemic. We have thrived. We know our customer more than we ever have in our past. And we know that despite anything that could occur, we're going to survive. And so that's my definition of that. And so that is my definition of success is that we can stand the test of time as a business. And, and I know that if I lost it all, I could do something else again. And I have complete faith in myself. And that to me is success. Yeah. I feel like that it's, um, something that I've been doing is writing down, going back, because when we were in the middle of it, it was really hard, but like writing down all of the like really hard things so that if I ever question my ability to do hard things in the future, I have volumes of journals that talk about exactly how hard it was. And you're right. That is, that's about as close to success as you can come. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for this time together. Congratulations on Fearless. And I can't wait to hear what stories are next. Thank you for having me. This has been Success Stories with Kendra Hall. If you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe, drop us a review, and tell your friends. If you'd like to hear more shows like this one, go to success.com slash podcasts.